All right. Well, tomorrow, or this evening and tomorrow, is a, a very special and important day in the Jewish community. It's called Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is a date. Uh, the ninth of Av is what that means. It's a date. Uh, and uh, it is a day that commemorates the destruction of the first temple and the second temple, uh, as well as many other uh, catastrophic and sad events in, in the Jewish world. It is interesting that uh, uh, many have done a, uh, a study of, of, of how uh, it seems that there have been significant events that have taken place on, on this date. And so, I, uh, in the course of Jewish tradition and history, this date was chosen to uh, on the both the liturgical calendar and just as a date to uh, pause, to lament, uh, and remember these uh, these uh, sad times, catastrophic times. Uh, but at this very same time, to remember. Uh, the presence of God. And so it is, it's very interesting. Now, on the liturgical calendar, meaning like in the cycle of uh, Shabbat readings and so on, uh, Tisha B'Av is the culmination of a period of three weeks of, of, uh, of mourning, of really lamenting these, uh, these uh, uh, kinds of events. And then after this uh, day of Tisha B'Av, we begin a series of Shabbat mornings that are called the Shabbat of Consolation that lead up to the High Holy Days. Uh, and so it's very interesting. So in the Haftorah portions, the prophetic portions uh, that we read after Tisha B'Av, that's where we begin reading passages between Isaiah 40 and 66. Uh, sort of uh, reminding us of the faithfulness of God uh, leading up to the uh, holidays of redemption, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there's a, a lot of different traditions, a lot of different things uh, that are read and that are done. Uh, traditionally, it's a fast day. If you've ever been to a, uh, a synagogue service on this holiday, generally speaking, almost everyone sits on the floor uh, and not in the seats uh, in, the, in the sanctuary, sit on the floor. And uh, a, a number of things are read. From the Bible, the book of Lamentations is, is read. However, <laughs> I, uh, this um, little machzors that, that I have here uh, uh, covers... Uh, the uh, prayers for Tisha B'Av. And you can see that a lot goes on during the course of this, of this day. And uh, what is in here mostly, it's not uh, a, a typical um, a machzor uh, or sedur for a holiday. It is filled with a, a, what are called kinot or lamentations that were written mostly in the Middle Ages and that are in the form of uh, poetry. And they're, and they're numbered. There's, and there's a, there's a number of them. There is a number of them uh, that, are, that are here. And uh, they reflect a lot of what's in the Book of Lamentations. 
But there were several uh, authors, uh, and if you take the MSI course on holidays, I'm sure you'll learn all this, uh, and also we do mention it uh, when we talk about writings and lamentations, uh, that there were several authors who were very prolific, and it was only over the course of history that their particular works became included in the readings that are read every, every year. So I picked one out just to read a portion of, uh, and, uh, and it starts out like this. Now, almost every single one of them are acrostics, just like the Book of Lamentations is. It starts with Aleph, you know, and ends in Tav, and so on. And uh, uh, so here, in this particular uh, lament, uh, in English, you assured us, I will be exceedingly good to you, and that your people and I will be distinguished. Why then do knaves profane your name, and do you not pour forth your wrath on them? You raised and elevated children to nurture them, as a nursemaid rears a suckling child. Why then have the Dodanim suffocated them with thirst, and the lion strangled to provide uh, uh, for his uh, cubs. You fed them honey from the rock and extracted flowing water from the rock. Why then have their judges slipped upon the rock and were their babes smashed against the rock? You eliminated and rejected every other nation and took for yourself one nation from another's midst. Why then has a nation rushed to attack my land? and said, let us wipe them out as a nation. Well, it goes on and on. And uh, the way it is uh, written in this particular moxor, the two words that are highlighted is the ata and valama. You know, and you promise this, so why has this thing occurred? So when you get to the very end of this particular one, there's a surprise. They're all, each uh, stanza is very similar to what I just read until you get to the very last one. The very last one in this particular, uh, in this particular lament says, uh, you are right with regard to all that has happened. With you, O Lord, is the right, and we affirm this lovingly. Why then do we complain and lament when all this has befallen us because of our sins. And so these uh, laments are written with the purpose of, first of all, resonating with our emotions, of uh, acknowledging the chaos around us and the, you know, the bad things that have happened. But very carefully, they are intertwined with a with with a, a faithfulness of God, uh, not saying, not putting God on the hot seat, but as a, a parent, we might say, "Why are you, why are you letting this happen to us?" In other words, saying, "I know that you love me, so I don't understand what's happening." See, I uh, and then also with the goal of repentance, the goal of yes acknowledging this has happened because of our transgressions. Uh, and that, in essence, is what Tisha B'Av is about. Reminding us 
uh, that, uh, of these events, yet at the same time uh, reminding us that God is faithful and that when we look around us and we see these things happen, they are the consequences of sin in our world, in our midst, in our lives, uh, and a desire then for the redemption, a looking forward you know, to, to the Olam Haba, to the redemption. And so that kind of helps us, I think, in understanding how, how we say that coming up to this holiday are three weeks of mourning, and then after this holiday, you have the beginning of consolation. You have the beginning of looking forward. The idea of looking forward to the fall festivals, uh, then in the, uh, in the way that this plays out, is not that, oh no, the high holy days are coming where we're going to stand before God and I hope that he accepts us. Oh no. No, it's actually kind of looking forward to those holidays and recognizing that, that, that God indeed accepts, accepts us. And, uh, and I think that it's very important for us and our, you know, for us as a Messianic Jewish community to uh, recognize this, uh, to remember this. Uh, and we have a, a, a tremendous message for our world in this. And that is, while things may seem pessimistic and hopeless, the fact of the matter is, is that it's because of the faithfulness of God that, that there is indeed hope and all is not lost. And, uh, and certainly a message of real hope, not a placebo, but, but of real hope is what this world needs. So I thought today we would take a little bit of a look at, uh, at uh, a few uh, passages in the book of Lamentations and, uh, uh, and hopefully um, uh, be encouraged of what it means to seek refuge you know, in the Lord. So Lamentations... And most of our Bibles uh, is located right after the book of uh, Jeremiah. And the reason that it's located there is because the tradition is, is that Jeremiah wrote it. Okay? Now, uh, it doesn't say that Jeremiah, in other words, it doesn't say the word of Jeremiah or the, you know, uh, Jeremiah the prophet or something. But that is the tradition. And, and the time period seems right regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, oy, 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 Jeremiah, much of Jeremiah is written much like what you read in the book of Lamentations. Okay? Now, we call it Lamentations, by the way, because that is uh, what the Septuagint uh, uh, called it. Uh, in Hebrew, it's, just the first, it's called Echa. Which, doesn't, which isn't really helpful uh, 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 to us. It simply means how, you know? And you see in the very beginning of the book, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once, a, who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces, she becomes a forced laborer. So I didn't finish that thought. So in our, in our Bibles that, that you have, it's located after Jeremiah. Uh, in a Jewish Bible, it is located toward the very end of it in the, in the part called the writings, Ketuvim, the writings. And that's where you see a lot of the poetry uh, uh, in the Bible. That's where you see uh, the books of the Hebrew Scriptures 
that are traditionally read on specific holidays, for example. For example, that's where Song of Solomon is. That is where Ecclesiastes is. Uh, uh, that is where Esther is. That is where Ruth is. Uh, that is where Lamentations is, as well as other books. Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the Bible, as well as some historical books as well. So, you see here, at the beginning uh, of Lamentations, you have this statement. I'll read it again. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. And so this is a personification of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is speaking in the first chapter of Lamentations. Uh, Jerusalem, actually, I shouldn't even say chapters. It's composed of five poems. Each stands independent of, of the other, but they all, they all relate to, to each other. Uh, uh, they're all, I should say this, they're all acrostics also. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Uh, and I, I could say more about the structure of the book, but take the course on writings. And you'll understand all about the structure of Lamentations and how it's supposed to work in our lives and so on. But anyway, but the beginning is uh, a, a very important statement because this first poem is Jerusalem lamenting. The city is lamenting uh, how uh, the city was once great and now has fallen. And if you look down in, in the fifth verse, we read, Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away, right? As captives before the adversary. And so there's an acknowledgement all the way through uh, of how bad it is because we have transgressed. And so it is a lamentation of the way things are, uh, of our sinfulness. But as you read through it, all the way through it, you see there is hope. Uh, there is hope in God. The second uh, poem, uh, the second chapter, uh, is really about the anger of God, God's anger at uh, the sins of the people. Okay? How the Lord has covered the daughters of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And, uh, and so we read, just as we do in many of the prophets, uh, about the anger of the Lord. And you know what this kind of reminds me of? It reminds me in the Brit Chadashah of when Yeshua is speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Yeshua isn't uh, hating the Pharisees. Uh, he isn't uh, con actually condemning them either, but he's chastising. He's chastising them, just as you know God. Uh, he's entered into covenant relationship with us, which means that he cannot give up on us, but he will indeed chastise us, just as we might say a good parent will not ever give up on one's children, no matter what they do. They won't give up on them. But it doesn't mean that we just simply cajole them or just um, 
let them have whatever they want or turn the other way, uh, you know, when they, when they sin. And so we see here in Matthew chapter 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, right? You see it in a number of places. I'll just read a, a couple of things. In verse 13 uh, of uh, chapter 23 of Matthew, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It goes on and on. Sadly, uh, there are those who take these verses and say, look at how he condemns the Jews. And, you know, and, uh, and so therefore, you know, uh, he has replaced Israel with the church, which on like 35 levels is all wrong, right? We know that, okay? Uh, but you see, at the end of the chapter, it is telling what happens at the end of the chapter. I love the end of this chapter, even though I don't love the end of this chapter, if you know what I mean. After all this, he says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so with all those woes, he has a heavy heart. Verses 37, 38, and 39 is like a lamentation on the part of God. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've done all of this, but I wanted to redeem, I wanted to bring you in, but you're not willing. So he doesn't say, so, adios. He doesn't do that. He, say, he doesn't do that at all, right? He says, your house is being left to you desolate, in other words, you have to face the consequences of your actions. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we all know that I could turn to lots of places all over the Bible where that is indeed going to happen. And how God says how I, you know, the day is going to come when they shall recognize me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for, you know, uh, uh, for him. Uh, we read uh, how God uh, at the end is going to redeem Israel and so on and so forth. So here, when you come back to the book of Lamentations, we see it is a real lament that Israel truly suffered. Jerusalem really suffered. And yes, horizontally, historically, at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, at the hands of the Babylonians. But this tells us that there is more than meets the eye. And that this is the hand of God at work. And when you read all the way through it, we don't have time for that. But when you read all the way through it, you see the, the struggle. That's why the tradition is, is that Jeremiah wrote, wrote this. The struggle of, I see the sadness. I see the destruction. I see the sin. And Lord, I know that you're there, but where are you? See? So it's very interesting because, see, the third chapter, right in the middle, you have one and two and then four and five, right? But in the middle, you have the prophet speaking for himself and experiencing this anguish. And then in the last chapter, 
Chapter 4 is, is another chapter of the anger of, of the Lord. But chapter 5 of Lamentations is also very interesting because that is where the community of believers, we say the remnant, is saying, Lord, remember us, remember us. This has happened. Remember us. This is what has happened. And when you go almost to the very end, see in verse 19, it says, Thou, O Lord, dost rule forever. Thy throne is from generation to generation. Why dost thou forget us forever? Why dost thou forsake us so long? Restore us to you, Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless thou hast utterly rejected us and art exceedingly angry with us. And isn't it interesting? That's where it ends. It ends with, with this conundrum. It ends with this angst. Lord, I know you're there. I know you're the king. But this is what we're experiencing. When will there be relief? Well, also very interesting, poetically speaking, right in the middle of the middle chapter are some of the grandest words of the faithfulness of God that's in the entire Bible. And if you did not grow up in a Messianic Jewish congregation and you grew up going to a local a church, you know what's in the middle of the book of Lamentations. And probably for some of you, you're saying, well, I was waiting for you to get to this, right? So you see in the middle when he's lamenting, but you have to really get the, the sense of what's going on. This is all in the middle of a lament of, of great sadness, right? We see in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Why does he have hope? Because he remembers what God has done. He remembers, even in the midst of all this, he remembers who God is, the great truths of his faith, the Shema, uh, 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 the, the redeeming of the people out of Egypt. Uh, 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 as you read, for example, like in Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 and Psalm 105, the great movements and, and deliverances of God. That's what he's remembering. That's why he has hope. Not in his current situation, but he remembers. And then he says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so he remembers the faithfulness of God from what is written in the text of the Bible and perhaps even in his own life. And so then he says, the Lord is my portion. That means Really, the Lord is my inheritance. Uh, it'd be another way of saying that. Says my soul, or I say to myself. Therefore, I have hope in him. And then he makes these declarations. Based on what he remembers, based on what he knows, he makes this declaration. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently. For the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke of his youth. 
Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. And then he's going to return. And he's going to slowly return to these laments. But in the middle of it, there is this island of hope. And there's a few things here that are important, I think, for us uh, to remember for our own selves. And when we look at, uh, when we look at our own world uh, around us, because when we look at the world around us, I mean, we could be, we could be reading Lamentations, we could be memorizing it and saying it every day when you just look at the world, we look at the world around us. And what's happening in, not all, you know, in, in, our, in our nation, around us, in our community, uh, in our world. And it'd be, it's very easy to be pessimistic. And it's very easy to have no hope. But you see, we know that God has entered into covenant relationship with this world. Do you know that with the world? That's, I sense, a little bunny trail here. God's covenant relationship is not only with believers. This is important to, to, to get. Yes, in terms of uh, eternal life, you know, in salvation, personal salvation, in the forgiveness of sins, yes, right? But understand that the, but he, he has made a promise to this world, for example, never to destroy it. That's what my Bible says, right? Never to destroy, never to destroy this world. That uh, the whole purpose, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, isn't it amazing they didn't drop dead? Isn't it amazing that God didn't say, well, well that was a nice experiment. Let's try some other form of creation, Okay. This thing with man created in my own image isn't quite working out. All right? No. What he did is he chastised them and they had to pay the price for the the consequences of their actions, but he did not do away with them. And the whole rest of the Bible, in a way, is about the reclamation of all of this. And that God, uh, the reason that we read in Isaiah about a promise of a new heaven and a new earth is because God wants it to be the way he originally intended. And, and so when uh, God sent Yeshua, it is for, he's for the salvation of this world. Not just so that I could fulfill a wonderful plan for my life or when I die, I can go to heaven. But when we receive Yeshua, we become part of that process of a new heaven and a new earth. And he's going to do it. Uh, and we don't know exactly when that day is, but boy, we're called to bring this good news to people, and that the, the entranceway is repentance and receiving the Lord into our lives and being forgiven of our, of our sins, and we should be able to demonstrate in our own lives and our own selves this reclamation project, demonstrate what it means to live in the Lord, to have Messiah as our king. When you look at the kings of this world, whatever they're called, all they do or what they are are mirrors of the people. The leaders that we have are a reflection of the rebellion and disobedience of the masses. And so when we look at the world around us, it can be quite depressing because we could, we could say, wow, you know, 
where do we really go from here? Well, there is another alternative, and that is King Yeshua. There is another alternative, that is Messiah, our Lord. And we know from our understanding of the Word of God that God has a perfect track record of faithfulness. While we have really just about a perfect track record of faithlessness. And that is, you know, that is what this week's Torah portion is about, right? When you read, what, what is Moses writing about that history? How God led us, but we continue to rebel. God led us, and we continue to rebel. Uh, but that he never indeed uh, uh, gives up on us. And that is what the writer of Lamentations recalls and remembers. By the way, this is very similar to certain other passages in the Bible, like Psalm 73 or the entire book of Habakkuk. Uh, and I can think of several others that sort of follow this, where I remember who God is, and then, now, I have hope, because I remember who he is. My hope is not built on what I see around me. My hope is in God. You know, uh, I am uh, reading a book right now, a very interesting little book. It's called, um, uh, un, um, I told some of you about it. Does anybody remember it? Un Unoffendable, that's the name of the book. Unoffendable, unoffendable. It's, you know, it's a little book. It's not, it's not uh, someone's magnum opus of, uh, you know, but it's a great little book about as Messiah followers, how can we be unoffendable? How can it be, how can we be so that we don't get sucked into what people may say about us or, or do to us and have to then, you know, deal with issues of retribution and, and uh, you know, how, how can we be unoffendable? And, of course, it talks about living a life of forgiveness and things like that. But it also talks about the fact that, you know, ultimately, everybody, and we're all sinners. We all have clay feet. And at some point, at some point, somehow, we will be disappointed in one another. See? And so we need to recognize that uh, and recognize that my hope is not built on this individual. You know, I'll tell you, uh, when I became a believer in Yeshua, I used to look at the guy who led me to the Lord as like, anything he says is right. And, you know, uh, now I'm still friends with him, and I, and I know him, and so I'm not, not going to say now he went off the deep end. And I, I'm not going to say that. He's still a wonderful, a wonderful person. But I know him. And as I have grown and matured in the Lord, I see this man is not perfect. And, uh, and maturity in Messiah brings us to that place where we can understand each other, being men and women of clay feet. My hope is in God. He is the only one who will never disappoint. He is the only one who is always the same yesterday, today, uh, and forever. And it's his loving kindnesses, his loyal love, that will never cease. It is his compassions that will never fail. Great is his faithfulness. Me, I'm still working on it. And I trust all of us would say that as, as well. And so when we see here, the Lord is, is good to those who wait for him, which is the same word, by the way, for hope. They're almost interchangeable, okay? To the person who seeks him, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. That stuck out in my mind 
also. Uh, because it made me think of several passages uh, about silence in the Bible. Silence, you know, and, and issues related to that. One is one of my favorite verses, and that is in Exodus chapter 14. And I always remember because it's Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14. So here, the Jewish people have come out of Egypt, fearful as can be. I mean, what are we doing? You know, where are we going? Right? And they come to the edge of the water, and they can't cross. And they look the other way, and here come the Egyptians. Oh, it would have been better if we had just stayed in Egypt. Moses, what have you done to us? You know. And, uh, and so, what does he say first? Uh, we have here, in verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Very important to circle that. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. And then what does it say after that? The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now, you know, that doesn't mean stick your head in the sand, but it means recognize that God will go before you and that your confidence needs to be indeed in him. So do not fear. And then I find fascinating the next verse also, just to throw it in. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to move forward. I love that. In other words, stop already. Stop pitying yourself. Stop singing that wonderful Linda Ronstadt song, Poor Pitiful Me. Move forward and, and throwing in a passage from the Brit Hadashah. Keep your eyes fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of your faith. And keep moving forward because God has not abandoned you no matter what. No matter what they say, no matter what it might look like, no matter what the people around you do or say, it is, it is God in whom we a trust, okay? You know, there's a couple of other passages about being quiet, and, and I'm just going to turn to one, and, and uh, this is a passage that the Lord just keeps reiterating in, into my life. It's kind of a, it's kind of a funny thing in that uh, in this book, Unoffendable, the author talks about Psalm 46, and then, so I'm reading it, and I'm thinking about Psalm 46, and then someone out of the clear blue sends me a text and says, I'm praying for you today, read Psalm, 140, uh, read Psalm 46, you know? Don't you love when that happens, you know? And then Monday night, uh, or no, Wednesday night, uh, some of us from MSI, we were at Henry's house, and he was telling us a couple, about a couple of websites, right? To look at about learning and teaching and studying and so on. And so, uh, you know me, uh, attention, attention span of a few seconds, uh, he's talking, so I decide I'm going to look at one of these websites. I go to the website, it has a verse for the day, Psalm 46. It was verse 1. And so I thought, maybe I should uh, study this. And, uh, and it's, it's a wonderful passage. It begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You may be familiar with that. Okay, so God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. I taught uh, a couple of Bible studies on this this week, and I asked the question, what does it mean that God is our refuge? What does that really mean, God is our refuge? Don't quote other Bible verses or, you know, it's just general sayings. What does it mean, right? So we came around to, well, perhaps in the, the next three or four words actually tell us what it means. Therefore, we will not fear. 
we will not fear. Maybe then, to take God as my refuge is to not fear. Even though the mountains might slip into the sea, we will not fear. Because, see, our hope is in God. Because when our hope is in God, we know that he, he is faithful and that his faithfulness is great and his mercies never cease. And when we really have that in our core, we can then move down to verse 10, which says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That is a great verse. And it comes in the middle of a few verses about warfare. And about, he's saying, God breaks the bow. God breaks the arrow. Stop striving. Like, stop. And know, uh, and know that I am the Lord. And I will indeed be exalted. Don't worry about exalting me. I will be exalted. Don't worry about defending me. I will defend myself. You just be there. You be faithful. You walk in the covenant. And you will see that there will be victory. As we read in Isaiah chapter 50 about Yeshua and his sufferings, he says, the Lord will vindicate me. Absolutely. And, and so uh, that's what it means, uh, may I suggest, when we talk here about in Lamentations, about uh, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. In other words, you be faithful. In the midst of this judgment, in the midst that all is, has happened, you be faithful to me. Your job is to show up, as some like to say. Your job is to show up, be faithful, walk in the covenant. Victory will be mine. I will indeed be exalted. Sometimes the more we fight for God, the, digger, the bigger a hole we're digging. And so important for us to, to really get that. Uh, you know, uh, a great passage along these lines, and uh, we'll wrap it up pretty much with this, is, is in Habakkuk, the fa- very famous passage that's quoted like five times in a New Covenant, one of the most famous passages in, in the Bible, when Habakkuk is like saying, how long, O Lord? You know, when are you going to do something about all this sin? When are you going to do something? And then God tells him he's going to take the fiercest enemy of Israel and he's going to use them to judge. And then Habakkuk says, you can't do that, right? And, uh, and then uh, basically God tells him, yes, I can, all right? And he tells him uh, basically what to do in the meantime. He says, you might think it's going to take a while for this to happen, as it says in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Fascinating. Though it tarries, wait for it. And then it says, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. From our point of view, it seems to be taken forever. From God's point of view, it's on time. And then he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. That's what he says. He's saying to Habakkuk and to the remnant of Israel, In the meantime, yes, the proud soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And a better translation in Habakkuk is, The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. And so, how important is it for us in the world that we live in we need to be faithful to God. 
faithful to God means that we are, we are men and women of prayer. It means that we are um, uh, men and women who live ethically and morally according to God's ways. Uh, it is uh, that we uh, proclaim the good news of Messiah uh, and that we share uh, with this world the way of righteousness and what is unrighteousness and, and, uh, and, and all of those things. When we take refuge in the Lord, that means we are not going to fear, no matter how the world is turning out, we're not going to fear. We're not, because when we fear, we often have knee-jerk reactions to things. It's so important for us not to fear and not to react, but to act rightly before God and to demonstrate his righteousness, his faithfulness. Uh, I could go on and on, which I am, about how did Yeshua demonstrate that? And the primary way Yeshua demonstrated that was through his own humiliation and sufferings and death and resurrection. Uh, but uh, the very last thing, there's a very encouraging passage in the book of Hebrews. And this kind of has to do with uh, oh, a number of different things, but a, a great, just a great word of hope in tying this all together from the Brit Chadashah in light of the coming of Yeshua, the Messiah. And that is in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Okay. Previously in chapter 6, in part of chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews is talking about God's promise to Abraham and how God is faithful to his promise to Abraham and he provided a son to Abraham, you know, and the covenant continues and continues to this day. So then when you come down to verse 17, of Hebrews 6, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to his heirs of the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose, he's the only one who will never disappoint us, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us, meaning in Yeshua. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What does that hope do? What does an anchor do? Those of you that are fishermen or whatever, you've been on a boat. What does that anchor do? It holds the boat so that it doesn't just meander and float away in the water. Our hope is an anchor that keeps us close. And it's not hoping in the microphone or hoping in a, in, in, a, in a sedure, or hoping in ourselves. It's hoping in the promise of God. That is the anchor. That's what keeps us strong and keeps us whole and keeps us going. A hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters it within the veil, where Yeshua has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you came to the mini-course of Melchizedek, you know all about that. But the king and the priest, that is who Yeshua is. That is whom we trust. He is indeed our anchor. So we can lament, yes, and be honest about the world around us. But may we recognize what our world needs, what we all need is repentance and a turning to God and uh, uh, facing him and walking toward him. So do not be discouraged about 
life or this world. And do not be a pessimist, but be optimistic because God will never leave us or forsake us. And just as we read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you know, many of them died without seeing uh, the fruition. So we know the promise is ultimately true. May we live that way. May we hope that way. And may we be able to get up every morning and say, his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We're so thankful for the faithfulness of God in sending Yeshua, our Messiah, so that we can embrace this great truth. Yes, even on Tisha B'Av, recognizing the catastrophes that have happened to our people, ultimately because of disobedience and rebellion. But, but there's hope, there's consolation. There's going to be uh, a day, the day of deliverance. Let's pray. Lord, uh, God, thank you for the testimony of lamentations. Lord, I, uh, may we realize, Lord, that we do live in a difficult world, and it is very easy to be t- pessimistic, and it is very easy to be offended, and it is very easy uh, to simply get sucked up into attitudes and actions of the world. Lord, may our eyes be focused on you. As Asaph said in Psalm 73, may we enter your sanctuary and then be able to perceive their end. Lord, may we be able to say, great is your faithfulness. May we remember who you are, Lord. And may we place our eggs in that basket. Lord, we are, we are sinners. We are people who have been redeemed. And all that we are, we are in you. Our identity is in you, Lord. Not in our talents, not in our gifts, not in, not in, our, in, our, in our successes, nor in our failings. But our identity is in you. And that is what binds us together. And Lord, may we stand firm on the rock. And may we all be able to say, great is thy faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for Yeshua, our Messiah. And we pray in his name. Amen.